<laughs> so, um, we are in Romans chapter 6, by the way. Uh, we finished up. Took us about a year and a half to get through the first five chapters, and so we'll make an attempt to get through this one chapter. Uh, my goal is to get through it before uh, November the 30th, because that's when I'm having my knee replaced, so that'll be uh, how long we get uh, to work on this. <clears throat> However, it is chapter 6, and if any of you are aware, uh, there's... A whole lot of debate as to the correct understanding of this chapter, especially. So we may be here for a while. You can read a dozen commentaries and get a dozen different interpretations, uh, some that contradict one another and some that contradict themselves, if you read carefully. Considered to be considered by most scholars to be the most difficult chapter in the entire Bible. So I'm not sure why that was left to me to be the one to teach it. <laughs> so we made it through the first five, going as deep as my feeble mind would allow, because I believe with everything in me that Paul's epistle to the Romans is the closest thing that we have to a true systematic theology. Uh Many men have written systematic theologies, and you may have read some. I've read some, uh, more than one, but I believe the book of Romans to be the acid test, as it were, uh, as to whether they are correct or in error. If they don't line up with the book of Romans, then it's best to move on. Uh, so we're going to be looking back and doing some repetition, because why wouldn't we? Uh, because we need to refresh our memories as to what has already been put forth, especially as you're going to see today, because what is the beginning of chapter 6 is so closely tied to the end of chapter 5. Uh, in order to understand what is now being said altogether. So we're going to dive in with probably the most well-known statement in this entire epistle, and that is uh, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now that statement that is the most frequently spoken about and likely the most frequently misunderstood and misinterpreted. This is the statement used in untold thousands of sermons, uh, thousands of teachings with regards to sanctification and holiness. But is that why it's here? Now, we have said this before, but those with more analytical minds than mine have divided up this book into sections. If you look into commentaries, they divide the book up into sections. They give chapters 1 through 5 as being uh, regarding sanctification or justification, chapter 6 through 8 is sanctification, uh, chapters 9 through 11, the problem of the Jews, and then 12 through 16 are the practical applications. Sounds good and rather simple, but it is actually quite wrong, as we stated before. Number one, because it's too mechanical, and, it, and number two, because it forces on the epistle something that the epistle never says. So... What might be our first clue that such a division is an error? Well, that division supposes 
that chapter 5 ends one section and chapter 6 begins an entirely new thought process. In other words, Paul has finished up telling us about justification and now he's going to go on to tell us about sanctification. Well, this is not an entirely new section. How do we know that? Well, if you look at the words on the page, he says, What shall we say when? Then. What shall we say then? Say about what? Okay. What, what shall we say then about something that I've just been telling you about? Okay, so it's not a new section. It's the same thought process. It's going to continue with the same idea that he has already been talking about in the previous chapter, something that relates directly to it. So to recap, we must remind ourselves of the whole theme of chapter 5. No point in moving forward to chapter 6 if we've forgotten what Paul has been saying in chapter 5. Just a reminder that this letter was written as a letter, uh, and the chapters and verses were not added until about 1,500 years later, and sometimes that wasn't done in the most accurate manner. It was just a matter of convenience. So this was a letter. So y'all wrote, written letters. I would do emails now and all that stuff, but it used to be a thing to write letters, okay? Uh, so you write, so Paul wrote, like he's like, Dear Roman Church, you know, that's his introduction. And he says, here's all the things that I have to tell you, and then he gets to the end and says, Sincerely, Brother Paul. All right? So that it's a letter. Uh, anyway, we hope, as we hopefully made clear, the theme of chapter 5 was assurance and certainty of salvation. The idea that having worked through the doctrine of justification by faith alone in the first four chapters and having refuted all the various arguments that had been, that had been or might be brought up against it, Paul then begins to lay out the things that result from that justification. So here's four chapters on Justification by faith alone. Now, here are the things that result from that justification. What are those things? He says, well, we have peace with God. We have access into this grace where we stand by faith, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is chapter 5 in a nutshell. The assertion that our justification guarantees our final redemption fully and completely. If we have been justified, then we can be happy about our ultimate salvation. Plain as that. If you are justified, then you can be sure that you will be sanctified and you will be glorified. He says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's Tied together, okay? Those he, whom he predestined, he what? He also called. Those whom he called, he also what? Justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified, okay? It's all been taken care of. That, that one thing guarantees all the rest of it. That is the theme of chapter 5. It's done. If we are justified, we are in a position to know that the whole of redemption is already ours. He wants these Roman Christians to realize and to understand this. 
So he works it out at length. Not the length that I took, but you get the point, right? That nothing can stand between them and this guaranteed end. If God gave his son to die for us, while we were still his enemies, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved in his life. Which in turn led us to that section from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, where Paul takes us through the most wonderful theme of all. And that being our union with Jesus Christ. So from 12 to the end of the chapter is about our union with Jesus Christ. We who were once joined to Adam are now joined to Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. And because of that, all that belongs to Christ will become ours. Because of Adam, we reaped terrible consequences. Okay? But because of this one, one act of the Son of God, uh, we're going to reap all the benefits of salvation culminating in a climax that I don't think I did justice to at the end of the chapter. So we're going to fix that today. He says at the end of chapter 5, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in Christ, we are under the reign of grace. Our future is guaranteed. Uh, We have certainty. That's why we're told to examine ourselves on so many occasions in the Scripture, to see if Christ is in you. If he is there, if Christ is in you, guess what? You're good to go. That's the thing that you need to be examining yourself for. If he's there, you're good to go. If you can't tell that he is there, he says what? You failed the test. Okay? That's the whole point of chapter 5. That this wonderful act of justification is just the first move which leads to all the other blessings and guarantees every one of them. That is his whole point. Justification guarantees everything else. If you have justification, then you have it all. Paul is not finished with the matter, and he will not be finished until the end of chapter 8. Okay? Just for a moment, he pauses. He is not finished with the theme of assurance in chapter 5, but he feels like he needs to stop for a moment. He needs to pause, and and he needs to deal with a very important question. If you remember, he said, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace grace abounded all the more. This is followed by the statement that basically says that since we are under the power and dominion and the reign of grace, nothing can prevent our final salvation. And then from his own words, Paul senses that there might be a difficulty. And so he wants to make sure that they understand his meaning clearly. He just said something that can be easily misunderstood, and there were many at that time and many still today that do misunderstand what he just said, Uh, especially the Jews. Not just the unbelievers, 
but many of the Jews that had been converted were having problems with this. So in order to prevent false deductions, he pauses just a moment to clear it up once and forever. So there's two problems raised here at one time, both with, both with regards to the law. The first one being the reason that I personally fought so hard for so many years against the doctrines of grace. Yes, most of you are familiar with my story, okay? Uh, and that is, won't this statement about grace and the apparent setting aside of the law, won't this encourage people to sin even more than they did before? How can this not lead to antinomianism? That means no law, right? How can this not lead to lawlessness? The more I sin, the more grace I will receive, right? The more I sin, the happier I will be because what I do doesn't matter. If, you've not, if you are not out in the world teaching and talking about Jesus Christ, you've never heard any of this stuff. If you are teaching and talking about Jesus Christ, you hear this every day of your life. This is just going to encourage people to sin. And I tell you, there are many unconverted who have adopted this mindset, and yet they still profess to be believers. And that's the first thought that Paul is going to address here. Secondly, if Paul is speaking this way about the law, was then the law not altogether useless and a waste of time from the beginning? What exactly was its place and purpose anyway? An intelligent, an intelligent Jew or an legalistic American like me, uh, whether converted or not, would be very likely and liable to think along these two lines as he heard the climactic statement at the end of chapter 5. So Paul pauses with his tremendous treatise about assurance and about the finality of justification to deal with these two probable difficulties. That's what he's doing in chapter 6 and 7. It's kind of a parenthesis uh, between chapters 5 and chapter 8. The theme of chapter 5 and chapter 8 is the same, and it is continuous. Remember, chapter 8 begins with, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We got that, right? Okay? That, that therefore, that's there. What is it there for? It's a link back to chapter 5. It's not a link to chapter 7. It doesn't work that way. Okay? Chapter 8 begins where chapter 5 leaves off. Chapter 6 and 7 come in between as a parenthesis, an interruption of the main argument in order to clear up some difficulties that have come up in connection with particular statements that have been made. Chapter 6 deals with the first question. Isn't this going to lead to antinomianism? So this is him addressing that first question. Chapter 7 deals with the second matter, which is an exposition and an explanation of the whole function and purpose of the law uh, with regards to God's plan of redemption. So once Paul deals with these two questions, he can then go on 
in chapter 8 and continue and complete his theme, which is the finality and assurance of justification. Now, there are many commentaries that reject what I have just said. They posit that chapter 6 is a brand new subject regarding sanctification and Paul dealing with the method of sanctification and then going on to chapter 7 to tell us what he used to be like when he was a defeated Christian. If you've read any commentaries, you're familiar with what I'm saying right now. Okay. Uh, and then to chapter 8 to tell us how he became a victorious Christian. That is the way that most commentaries lay this book out. Okay. Don't see any evidence for that kind of division. I think that it does Paul a disservice to look at it that way. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What shall we say then? Say about what? It's very clear to me that this is a lead-in to an exposition or an explanation or a clarification of something that he has already said. We're going to look a little more closely. Chapter 6, Paul is dealing with the danger of antinomianism. The danger which he has so, which has so often arisen in the history of the church. Paul addressed it. The Lord addressed it. Peter and James and Jude all addressed it. Jesus even said, plain as the nose on your face, that there are more lost people in what claims to be the church than there are saved people. The danger of people saying, what a wonderful doctrine of salvation. This free gift, the free grace of God, it really means that it does not matter at all what you do. You are saved once and forever. Paul is going to explain this, and he's going to deal with this in chapter 6. And how does he deal with it? Meganoito. As you read the New Testament, you find that the Apostle uses this formula a total of 14 times in his epistles. And always after a rhetorical question, means he's not looking, rhetorical means he's not looking for an answer. He already knows the answer, okay? Uh, and in doing so, his point is to say that the idea expressed in that question is absolutely unthinkable even abhorrent, by no means, meganoito, by no means, God forbid, may it never be, perish the thought, depending on which translation of the Bible you use, you get to see all of those, okay? Uh, that is his answer to the question, shall we continue in sin, meganoito? Are you out of your mind? Okay, that's my translation of that. Are you out of your <laughs> okay. Again in verse 15, he says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Meganoito, have you lost your mind? So as we work our way through chapter 6, we see that we have two sections here. Verses 1 through 14, he deals with the danger of antinomianism doctrinally based upon our union with Christ with the occasional exhortation thrown in. Then the second section, which is more of a practical dealing with the situation, which is always a good thing, 
Uh, first, we have the reasons why it is doctrinally wrong. And then he brings out the absurdity of the whole idea and how foolish one would have to be to adopt that idea in praxis. People who adopt this viewpoint of freedom to sin, that's their freedom to sin, okay, when you examine their theology, that's what it amounts to, have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have completely failed to understand the whole meaning and purpose of grace. So what is the purpose of grace? Is it to allow us to continue in sin? Meganoito. Paul says it is to deliver us from the bondage and the reign of sin and to put us under the reign of grace. So those who ask the question posed in verse, posed in verse 1 show that they, for one, fail to understand the tyrannical power and hold of sin over mankind. And two, they fail to understand the marvelous reign of grace that is over those who are saved. What he is going to bring out here is that those who have truly been saved do not think like that, much less act like that. Okay? That is why Paul responds with, perish the thought. He then clarifies that with what may well be one of the greatest and most important statements of this entire letter. You need to hang on to this one with all your might. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's the statement that's going to be our focus for the rest of today died here is aorist tense y'all familiar, familiar with tenses it is something that has happened once and forever a reference to a definite fact that belongs to the past it's not a process that we are still working on it's once and done it's already happened aorist tensed which will be important to remember as we get to some later verses so we don't mess them up. Okay? So here says Paul is something that happened to you at a certain point in history. What was it that happened? It is the moment that we ceased to be in Adam and began to be in Christ. That's the moment that we died. Okay? That's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about when he says we died sin <clears throat> one time for all time aorus tense uh, more on that later so having said all that we can now look at this first section of this of how this first section of this chapter is to be divided up uh, verses 1 and 2 give us this question that was raised prophetically in Paul's mind so he says these things and then he says yeah, some people are going to not going to get this. So he's, you know, this is the question that was raised prophetically in Paul's mind while he was writing this. He knew what was coming as soon as he penned the words, along with his general but definite answer. And then in verses 3 through 11, he goes into detail of why it may never be, 
why God forbids it, why it is meganoito. Then in verses 12 through 14 is a general appeal to us in light of all that he has had to say about the matter. Now that we have the whole picture in mind, we can break it down and look at the parts. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Again, contrary to some popular commentaries, I believe that Paul just gave us his complete answer to that question. He then goes on in verses 3 and following to work it out in detail. The words, do you not know, in verse 3, are Paul's way of saying, here is my answer, now let me prove it to you. Okay, And all the way through verse 14 is just Paul's commentary on verse 2. That's why verse 2 is so important. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And he repeats that thought in various forms in almost every verse, as we shall see. Therefore, that thought must be kind of crucial, to say the least. In fact, the understanding of that one thought. How can we who died to sin still live in it? is the key to understanding Paul's doctrine of salvation in its full sense. So if we understand this one statement, we can then understand all the other ones. They will fall into line comparatively easily. Here comes the fun part. What does he mean? Again, a dozen commentaries and a dozen different interpretations. So here is number 13. Start with that little word, we. The original statement shows us the true power of what he is saying here. What he actually wrote, what Paul actually wrote was this. We, how can we, emphasis on the we, that's why he stated it twice, His point is this, we being what we are, how is it possible or even conceivable that we would continue in sin that grace may abound? We, being such as we are, can we who are dead to sin still live in it? That emphasis is our key to the interpretation. The whole emphasis is on our special position, that position that we now hold because of that one aorist event in our history. That is what makes the question unthinkable. If you truly realize what you are and what your position is, this question is ludicrous say the least. We being who we are and what we are, can such people as we continue to live in sin? Paul is saying that people who raise that kind of question found in verse 1 have completely misunderstood his argument. 
that he put forth in chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. If only they had followed that and realized who they are and where they stand and what they are in light of that doctrine, they would realize how ridiculous, in fact, how monstrous it is to bring up such a question. All because of that little word, we. Who we are, what we are, where we stand, in whom we stand. It can't happen. And he brings us to his key statement, which I already mentioned. We who died to sin... Not that we are dead to sin presently, not that we have died to sin as in an ongoing process. Uh, we do not become more and more dead to sin until we gradually reach a point that we can say that we have finally died to sin. After all our effort and all our struggle and all our hard work, we have finally died to sin. It's aorist tense. It happened once, and it concluded at that moment. An act that happened once for all time. Again, this will be of utmost importance as we continue in this chapter. It says, We, how shall we that died to sin continue to live in it? Here again we come to a place where there is much dissension as to what this is actually saying. Firstly, there are some people who are called perfectionists, sinless perfectionists. You've heard of those. Who believe that they are completely dead to the influence and the power and the love of sin. Okay, you ever met somebody like that? Which anyone with any honest self-reflection can immediately dismiss as not true. And if it were true, it would make the rest of the letter of no benefit. Okay? That's true. We don't need the rest of the Bible, basically. Others who say that we ought to be dead to sin. That he is not saying that we are dead to sin, but that if we were true Christians, worthy of the name and really had understanding... It's saying, how can we who ought to be dead to sin continue to live in it? But again, it's aorist tense. There is no ought to be. He says we are dead to sin. Okay? Still others who say that this is about sanctification. That's the majority vote on this, that this is about sanctification. How shall we that are dying more and more every day to sin say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? They say that that would be contradictory. Again, our answer is that Paul does not say that we are dying more and more to sin. He says we died to sin. It, it happened once. It already happened. In that act, in that fact, in that one event in the past, we died to sin. So, we can reject all three of those interpretations outright. Charles Hodge. Keith has mentioned him on occasion. 
absolutely brilliant man, says that this statement means, how shall we that have renounced sin live any longer therein? On the surface, that seems right. A Christian is a person who, by their very nature, has renounced sin. Right? That's what we do, right? A Christian says that he believes in in Jesus Christ and that he does so because he has come to realize that he is a sinner, and that fact leads to eternal, eternal punishment. Thus, he feels the need to be delivered. He believes in the gospel of God, that Jesus Christ is the one who can deliver him from sin. Therefore, when he says, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, says Hodge, he is saying that I want to be delivered from sin. Well then, says Hodge, if a man has said that, if he has renounced sin, how can he possibly say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Again, the contradiction. I want to be rid of sin, but this wonderful grace allows me to continue in it, and so he would be contradicting himself. Sounds good, but it's wrong. Why do we not accept this interpretation? Because of the we. It is our position that makes this suggestion impossible and unthinkable. We being what we are, not something we have done. See where that that suggestion leads to? What we are is the most important thing, not what we have done. Paul is not talking about something that we do. Yes, we do renounce sin, but rather he is telling us about something that has happened to us. We died to sin. To say that it is because of something that we did, as in our renunciation of sin, is almost a direct contradiction of everything Paul is talking about here and a contradiction of the gospel. Hodges' interpretation leaves it all up to us. If you read him, he says that Paul is saying to these Romans, when you submitted to baptism, you were saying, I want to finish with that old life of sin. I want to be dead to it. I want to have no more to do with it. I renounce it. But that interpretation puts the whole thing on us, on our activity and on our action. I believe Paul is emphasizing here not what we have done, but what has been done to us, what has been done to our position. That great event that he's been writing about in chapter 5, verses 12 all the way to the end, that one event that happened to us when we were taken out of Adam and placed into Christ. Now, why would a man as brilliant as Charles Hodge put forth such a particular interpretation same reason that I once put forth much the same type of thing to avoid the charge of antinomianism. So, continue on. We'll talk about that a little more. And then we have an interpretation put forth by Robert Haldane, also a very famous man, also a very brilliant man. Haldane rejected all the ideas that we have mentioned thus far, just as I have. So he's on the same page as me. Doesn't make that, that's not what makes him right, okay? 
Realize that Paul is talking not about something that we are doing, but something that has been done to us. He realizes that there is a very real death to sin referred to here. Well, says Haldane, there is some sense in which we have died to sin. Uh, what is it? So he says the apostle here means that we have died to the guilt of sin, period. That's Haldane's, that's his, that's his interpretation, that we have died to the guilt of sin, period. As far as the guilt and punishment of sin are concerned, we have finished with it. The law cannot touch us. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, and he stops there. Everybody agree with that? Yeah, we are dead to the guilt of sin. Amen. Praise the Lord. But Paul goes a lot farther than even that. Being dead to the guilt of sin does not do justice to what Paul has said in chapter 5, nor to what he will continue to say in the rest of this chapter. Haldane stopped for the same reason that most stop, the same reason that Hodge stopped, fear of the label of antinomianism. He says that the power of sin is still there, and Paul does not say that we are dead to that. I believe that Paul does say that. In what sense has the believer died to sin? The answer is found in chapter in verse 21 of chapter 5. I told you that we would do that one again. All right. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in what sense have you as a Christian died to sin? The answer is you have died to the reign and the rule of sin. Not just the guilt of sin, but to the reign and the rule of sin. Paul is contrasting the reign of sin with the reign of grace. And what he is saying here is that Christ's death and resurrection have brought the reign of sin to an end in the case of all believers. Again and again, Paul says the same thing. For sin abounded, grace did much more abound. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's the reign of sin, right? The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's the reign of sin over everybody. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. That's the reign of grace. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's the reign of sin. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's the reign of grace. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's the reign of sin. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's the reign of grace. Do you see it? That's what he's taught. That's everything all the way through. That's what he pushes and pushes and pushes. 
so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Over and over and over, his whole point is just to say this. If you are a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are justified by faith, if you are in Christ, then you are finished with that reign of sin. You are now under the reign of grace. We. How can we, who have died to the reign of sin, continue to live in it? Reign, meaning its rule, its power, its realm. The reign of grace means exactly the same thing. It means the power, the rule, the influence, the force, and the might of grace. So what Paul is saying is that at the moment we were regenerated, at the moment we were justified, the moment we became Christians, we are dead, completely dead to the reign of sin. We are out of sin's territory altogether because of what we are in Christ. Being what we are as the result of what has happened to us. We are dead to the reign and rule of sin. So now here comes the objection. How can you possibly say such a thing? We still sin, right? We still feel the power of temptation, right? Or is it, am I the only one? Oh my. Still feel the power of sin. How can you honestly say that you are dead to the rule and to the reign of the whole dominion of sin? The answer is this. We have to differentiate between what is true of our position as a fact and our experience. There is all the difference in the world between a man's status and position on the one hand and his actual experience on the other hand. Paul here is only concerned about our position that is, and what he is saying is that at this very moment, every person in the world is either under the reign and rule of sin or else under the reign and rule of grace. That's it. As a Christian, we who were once under the reign and rule of sin are now under the reign and rule of grace. It is either one or the other. There is no one who is straddling the fence. Under sin or under grace. Paul says that as Christians, we are dead completely to the reign of sin. Once and forever, we have been taken out of that position. Our citizenship is already in heaven. We're living on earth, but our citizenship is, is there. It's in heaven. No longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. A complete change in our position. We have changed our kingdoms once and forever. Sin no longer controls us. Sin no longer controls our destiny. Before becoming Christians, we were united to Adam. We belonged to Adam and his fallen race. And all the consequences of his sin and action were on us. We were in Adam. 
but now we are in Christ. We have been taken out of Adam. We have been put into Christ. Two possibilities for every human on this earth. They're either in Adam or they are in Christ. That's the whole message of chapter 5. If you are in Christ, you are no longer in Adam. We're dead to sin, dead to its rule and its reign. We are now under the reign of grace. Not just forgiven of our sins, not just trying to live a better life. It's so much more than that. The reign of sin produced certain results. The reign of grace is guaranteed to produce certain results. And grace is infinitely more powerful than sin. Amen? Being in, gra- being in Christ, being under the reign of grace, guarantees my full and final salvation as an absolute certainty, not merely dead to the reign of sin, but alive under the reign of grace. I believe here is the most important application of this. We as Christians, we must not think of ourselves as merely good people that have made a decision and who now have a desire to do good and to be good. Now, if you ask most Christians, that's, that's their definition of what Christianity is. A person who's made a decision and now has a desire to do good and to be good. I hope that's not your definition, Okay. Multitudes, billions have made that decision and had that desire to do good and to be good, and those same people have fallen by the wayside when the trials and the troubles come. Now, if you're a Christian, then the truth is that every ounce of power in the reign of grace is on you. It is working in you, and it will bring you to perfection. That is why the very suggestion in the first verse is so monstrous. The whole object of grace is to destroy sin and all its works and all the fruit of it. So the very suggestion is impossible. We are under the power that is destroying sin. So we, how can we possibly continue to live in it? live, speaking of live, how can we continue to live in it? Live means literally to continue and abide. Paul is asserting that in view of our position, the fact that we are under the rule and reign of grace, it is impossible that we should continue and abide in sin, or that a life of sin should be our life. As Jesus said in John 8:34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, what he did not say was everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. He did not say that. What did he say? Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Practices means continues in it or adopts it as a lifestyle. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And then the awesome response, 
So if the Son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. In 1 John 3 and 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Makes a practice. Peripateo. That's the word. Peripateo. How you walk. It's your style of life. What you are as you go through every day. Okay? We all fall into sin. We just can't stay there. What we are, who we are in, won't allow such a thing. That's why he says, God forbid. Who we are, what we are, who we are in, won't allow such a thing. Habitual sin is the antithesis of living under the reign and rule of grace. Get that phrase that John puts forth. Because that ties in with our main theme for today. He says, uh, born of God. Not born of a decision. Not born of a profession. Not born of a desire. Not born of an action on our part. Born of God. See, all of the decisions in the world can't take you out of Adam and put you in Christ. All the professions of faith in the world can't take you out of Adam and put you in Christ. All the desires, any action that you might take, whatever that action might be, can't take you out of Adam and put you in Christ. Born of God. Because God is the one who takes us out of Adam and puts us in Christ. God's seed is in us. Even if we wanted to, which we don't, because it's an old preacher friend of mine, you say God changes you want to. Even if we wanted to, we could not continue in sin because God has made us a new creation. We cannot keep on sinning. The desire is no longer in us. Because of we being what we are. Paul is not telling us that we ought not to sin and that we ought not to continue in sin because that would be self-contradictory of us, as Hodge puts it. What he is saying, rather, is, is that you cannot. You just can't do it. It's not possible. Light can chase away darkness. Everybody understands that, right? Light chases away darkness. Even tiny little light chases away darkness. Darkness can never chase away light simply because of what they are. You and I cannot under any circumstances find ourselves continuing in sin not because of any fortitude within us, because we have none. Not because of any righteousness within us, because, again, we have none. We cannot continue in sin because of what we are. And we are what we are because of what has been done to us. We are born of God. We have been placed in Christ. 
the ruler of our thoughts and deeds and eternity is no longer sin, but grace. I'll finish with this little illustration here from Martin Wood-Jones. Hopefully it will clarify what I've been trying to say. He says, how can I say that I am delivered from the rule and the realm and the reign of the devil and of sin when I still fall into temptation? Well, look at it this way. Think of two fields with a road between them. The field on the left represents the dominion, the kingdom, the territory, the empire of sin and of Satan. That is where we all were by our natural birth. That's where we, were. That's where we started out. But as the result of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ for us and upon us through the Holy Spirit, we have been taken hold of and transferred to the field on the right-hand side of the road. Delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. I was there on the left, and I am now here on the right. Oh, but I spent many a long year in that devil is still there with all of his powers and all of his forces. And this is a picture of what often happens. As a Christian, I am here in the new field and Satan cannot touch me. As we're told in John's first, first epistle, chapter 5, verse 18, he says, The evil one toucheth him not. He cannot touch us because we are no longer in his kingdom. Satan cannot touch you. but he can shout across the road at us. Every Christian who falls into sin is a fool. The devil cannot touch us. Then why do we listen to him? Why do we allow him to frighten us? Why do we pay any attention to him? We no longer belong to him, and, we can, and he cannot touch us. We know that Scripture asserts our freedom as an actual fact. But because of the old habits, the old influence, like the slaves that had been set free, remember the stories of the slaves in the South that were told they were free, but they didn't know how to deal with it. Think about the children of Israel who were freed from Egypt. They couldn't, they couldn't deal with it. been set free, but we tend to forget it. And when he speaks to us, we listen to him, and we fall under his spell. We should resist him. The Bible says resist the devil and he'll free from, flee from you. But we fail to realize it. The whole objective of the Apostle Paul in this sixth chapter is to get us to realize it. We being what we are, we being born of God, how can we who died to sin continue to live in it? Let's pray.